Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peart. I am once again joined by my glamorous co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Um, it's been a bit of a hectic couple of days, actually. Um, so... I had a couple of days off from work and I had nice things planned. I was going to go out riding on my horses, having a relaxing time. But then at four o'clock on Monday morning, my kitchen flooded. So the sink got blocked and then I had water coming out through the sink and it flooded the floor and it was a bit of a drama. So I spent pretty much the whole day on Monday, ankle deep in water, trying to sort out my flat and getting it all clean but it's okay now luckily I'm very fortunate that I I rent so it's any of the damage caused is not really my problem it's a furnished flat but that was my day off from work clearing up a waterlogged flat jeez um how was your tattoo you got a tattoo this weekend I did yes I got that on Saturday it was it's really good I really like it it's starting to heal already um yeah, I, I'm already planning my next ones. Had a, a good weekend, but less good beginning of the week. How have, have you, you been the... anyway? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had an exciting one. I um, I went to the bare knuckle boxing on Saturday and I have never seen anything like it in my life. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of boxing as it is, um, you know. I travel around, I watch a lot of big boxing fights. You know, I've been to... Manchester and London to watch big heavyweight heavyweight fights involving Tyson Fury and Dylan White and Joe Parker and Joe Joyce recently. I go to a lot of local ones. I thought, yeah, I'll go to bare knuckle boxing. I wasn't in Kansas anymore, Tilly. It was it was um brutal is the only way I can aptly describe it. It was an experience. It's a bit violent for me, I have to say. <laughs> it was. It was. It was. It was incredibly violent. I, I will not describe it too much because it was. It was gruesome yet enthralling at the same time. And then last night, I uh, I watched the football in a hot tub with my best friend, just me and him. He's got. He's just recently bought a new house, and like any man in his mid thirties does, the first thing he does is buy a hot tub. And he Standard, set this. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that would be my priority. <laughs> so he he set it up specifically for the World Cup, and the first World Cup match. I uh, it was it was in the afternoon. It was a one o'clock take up kickoff. So it was a Monday. So I didn't couldn't take time off work. So I just took a long lunch break. I managed to let me have an extra hour, and I watched it at home. Second one was on Friday. Went out with a group of eight lads. Watched it in 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 Newcastle Town Centre. And this one, I, I I just sat in my friend's. Essentially, he's got a, a one man hot tub beer garden. It's outdoors, and he's got the screen up. He's got an outdoor television screen on a stand, and yeah, we just me and him stripped off, hopped in the hot tub, and sat and watched the football. Just a, a natural, normal thing for a couple of guys to do on a Monday. Nice, I love it. <laughs> you must have had a good time. I did. And England won. So, yes, um, I'm very pleased with that. C- commiserations to our Welsh listeners. So, Tilly, um, we're doing things a bit different on this show because you're going to take the lead. You know, 
this this is this is this is your show today because you wrote an article for social work news last week called 10 signs your social work manager is toxic and it has been by far and away our most popular piece now and thousands of likes and hundreds of comments it's clearly struck a chord so on this podcast, we always try and reflect the things that our listeners want and that our listeners like and find traction with the social work world. So, Tilly, I'm going to hand it over to you, and you're going to start by telling us all about your article. Where did the idea come? If you start by telling us the idea about this article, and then we'll break the pieces down one by one. What? Don't name any names about toxic managers you've had, but what made you fancy writing about toxic managers in social work? Well, I think it's a really, unfortunately, it's a really common theme in social work. And it always really saddens me that we are in a position where social workers are supposed to be supportive and empathetic and generally nice people, um, you would hope. Yet it seems that it's fairly common that lots of people come across at least once in their career, if not more, Mm. a toxic manager. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've generally been very fortunate with my managers. And certainly in recent years, I've had brilliant managers. I, I've got no no complaints at all. But certainly earlier on in my career, I had a couple of managers that you could describe as toxic. Mm. Um, one that was just really incompetent and another one that was just made everyone feel really uncomfortable and created a really horrible atmosphere within the team. Um, there was lots of signs that I've talked about in my article with this manager. Um, and it's difficult to know when you're in that situation what to do because um, it's it's really uncomfortable and, and difficult to whistleblow. And I know that that's something that we should always do if we're concerned about someone's practice because ultimately these people are social workers as well as being managers. They have a code of practice that they have to follow Um, And they are ethically accountable for their actions. Yet when you're in a team where that's happening, it can feel really uncomfortable because it's your livelihood on the line. You don't know whether you're going to be believed. You don't know sometimes who you can turn to, who is a safe person. Um, Do you go to their manager? Do you go to HR, your union? There's so many different options available to you but it can feel really overwhelming. And especially if they've been someone that's made you lose your confidence or knocked your passion and love for social work. Um, It's it's quite common for people to just not really know what to do. Um, And they can either leave social work altogether or hopefully they'll, they'll move teams and see that not all managers are like that. Mm. But that's what I really wanted to draw out from this article, just to start the conversation going about here are some of the signs that you're working for a toxic manager. And I'm planning to do a a next article about then what can you do? What are your options? So I've had some, I've had a few people actually reach out to me already since I've done this article, um, asking for advice on various topics. So I'm going to be pulling some of those general themes together. Obviously, I've I've replied to those individuals privately, but um, there are some general tips that I've picked up on my career and certainly through conversations with people like you and, and my fellow experienced social workers about what you can do if you're in this situation. 
It has. It, it, it's been incredibly popular and it's definitely struck a chord because I, I don't recall have, having ever read anything like this and we certainly haven't discussed it on the podcast before or in the magazine in, in, in this kind of depth. Obviously, we, we touch on the fringes of it because it is a common issue, but it isn't really discussed in great detail. What surprises me about social work managers, and I've been a social work manager in the past, and I'm currently an assistant team manager, and even I can apply this to myself. When I was promoted to a social work manager, and even now I've moved to a different local authority where I'm an assistant team manager, at no point at all was I given any management training. Now, I would consider myself a competent and experienced and skilled social worker. I haven't done the job for a decade, and I've got lots of qualifications and training related to social work itself, and, and, and I certainly know what I'm doing in terms of the job. But I've never been given any bespoke management experience, and neither is any single social work manager I've never known in my life. Now, am I just unlucky, Tilly? Uh, am I just, have I just not met people, or have you been given specific management training and do you know managers that have been given specific management training no not at all um i mean there's there's various training that you can have around supervision and certainly if you go on to do things like your practice educator training then you may have picked up some of the skills that you need to to carry out effective supervision with people but certainly the day-to-day runnings of a team how to motivate your staff how to deal with hr issues how to deal with things like allocations Mm. supporting people who are struggling all of these really key parts of being a manager you're left completely in the dark and you kind of have to learn as you go and hope that your your fellow managers and your own manager is able to support you to develop those skills but I think every manager I've spoken to has found a similar thing where it it's a learning curve and some people are successful with that and continue to grow as they have done when they were a social worker but some people unfortunately it, it boggles my mind it really does that there is no set career framework and training for social work managers because the skills to be a social work manager and the skills to be a social worker are incredibly different. They're incredibly different. Now, yes, if you're a good if you're a good social worker, I think you can be a good leader and you can be a good mentor and you can be a good role model, but those things do not necessarily make you a good manager, do they? No. I mean, your focus has to completely change because yeah. when you're a social work practitioner, you're supporting the individuals that are on your caseload and they are your primary focus. You are advocating for them and seeking the right support for those people. But when you're a manager, you have to take a step back and it's no longer about the individuals. It's about the collective mm. and you have to balance your resources. And it make, it means making some really tough decisions that don't sit ethically as a social yes. worker because you want to do what's best for everyone but sometimes you've got to make those difficult decisions and nothing can prepare you for that yes it's uh, the the thing that i struggled with most as a manager was having to allocate cases when i knew everybody was working beyond capacity and and, and knowing that a case had to go to someone and 
there was a very high chance that they were going to go off on sick or put the notice in or that their personal life was going to suffer because of it. It uh, it was a task that I did not relish, to put it lightly. Let's uh, let's move on to your article specifically then, talking about signs of toxic managers. So I'll go through these one by one, Tilly, and if you'd just like to talk a little bit about them. So the first sign that you put for a social work manager potentially being toxic is they don't respect your boundaries. Could you explain this one a little bit more, please? Of course, yeah. So I think this is a a sign that, again, many social workers come across people that, well, you've just talked about it, managers are put into really difficult positions sometimes mm. where they have to allocate work and you know that your staff can't take on anything else, but you've got vulnerable people that desperately need a statutory intervention and there's nothing that you can do to resolve that without actually allocating but equally I think it's really important that managers recognize the well-being of their staff and if someone says no I cannot take that piece of work on or I cannot work that extra these extra hours I've got children to pick up I've got family commitments I can't get out of or actually I just can't for my own health and well-being purposes that has to be respected because if you if you push your workers too much you're not going to have your workers left to support anyone and I think that's a a key sign of a, a toxic manager if they push their burdens onto their staff and actually that might be around they need to push for to hire up management that actually more staff are needed you might need to use agency staff or some sort of relief support and actually these decisions to not be able to complete certain pieces of work should never sit with the social worker on the on the front line it should always be sat with higher up what do you think about managers that contact social workers on evenings weekends and when they're on holidays it depends on the worker because I know I've got people in my team that if they've got a day off and something really horrendous came in they would happily step in and support but I think it's around having that conversation with your team to start with and knowing when it is okay to contact them and when it's really not Mm -hmm. and I know there's certain staff that I just would never disturb it it's it's got to be a conversation and it's got to be based on on an individual circumstances but ultimately none of us work 24 hours a day we should all be able to switch off that's why we have out of hours teams and duty teams and if something cannot be done then that's not your problem as a social worker and it shouldn't be shouldn't ever be made to feel like it is your problem i once had a manager message me was when i was on holiday in amsterdam and uh, it deeply disturbed me um because you know i was on holiday i was on holiday i was i was you know recharging my batteries having a good time and, and it's hard to switch off for me getting that one message about work that i quickly responded to it kind of shattered the illusion and then I was suddenly thinking about work and I was sort of back in that zone and uh, I'm 
dead against it, I would never, unless it was critical, and, and I mean really critical, not not an emergency that I'd made up or not a you know a, a risk averse fake crisis, but a genuine emergency. You know, genuine emergency where we needed a password to get into a document that we desperately needed, or we needed a statement for court. Um, I just think those boundaries have to be respected because, for me, if you contact a social worker on evenings and weekends, yes, it might ameliorate that current situation. But as you hinted there yourself, Tilly, you could risk that worker eventually leaving. And for me, it's just not worth it. It really isn't worth it. So that 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 was always a firm boundary for me when I was managing. And it's a firm boundary now. And it's the reason why I don't use my personal phone for work at all. I've got the team WhatsApp group on my work mobile. The only person that has my personal mobile is my manager. And she's really great. She would only ever contact me in emergency situations. And in the year and uh, eight months I've been in my current position, she hasn't done that once. Let's move on to the next sign you have a toxic manager. They micromanage every aspect of your work. I've got a story about micromanagement from one manager that I'll bring up soon. Uh, But for you, Tilly, do you want to explain a little bit about the impact of micromanagement and the kind of signs that you might see that your manager is approaching their oversight in such a means? Yeah, so I think there are two reasons that someone could be micromanaging you. And the first one is just, that's their style of management and I find that really toxic because it shows that they don't trust their team it shows that they are just a bit of a control freak about it and it's not healthy for them and it's not healthy for you and it interferes with the way that you practice as a social worker but the, the second one is if they're kind of doing it to you and not anyone else and they haven't really told you why Because if there is an issue about someone's performance or time management or practice, that needs to be addressed in an open and respectful way under the proper channels. Whereas if they're inappropriately stepping in and getting you to do things and finding out exactly what you're doing at every moment of every day, I just think that that's just toxic behavior. That's not okay. Um, If there's a problem, you've got to be open enough to talk about it not just kind of sneakily doing it on the side. But I'm intrigued to hear your story. Do you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I've had two experiences that really, really stand out in terms of micromanagement. Thankfully, they are from many, many years ago. Otherwise, I wouldn't dare share them. And of course, I won't reveal anything personal. And I raised these with the respective people at the time. You know me, Telly, I I won't hide my bushel, uh, hide my flame under a bushel. So... The first one, I had a manager years ago that used to go into my Outlook calendar and fill gaps with what she thought I should be doing. So she would go into, she did this with all the teams. She would go into the team's calendar and if she saw maybe sort of a half hour between visits or a half hour between meetings, she would put things in that needed doing like update chronologies check children's GP records are up to date. Now, we all have to do this. Everybody listening will know that around once every couple of weeks there's a data cleanse and someone from admin or someone from senior management will send an email reminding everyone, right, you need your chronologies up to date. You need to check that schools are current. You need to check that phone numbers are up to date. And we all, if everyone's being honest, generally tend to put that push that to the bottom of our list because we've got so much stuff on. 
this certain manager thought it'd be a good idea when those emails came through to take the time to go through each individual social worker's outlook calendar and find little slots where she could put in half an hour to an hour so you could do that work. And if it wasn't used in that time, you were called to the office like a naughty schoolboy or naughty schoolgirl and had to explain why you hadn't done your homework. That's horrendous. <laughs> that is just not okay at all. Yeah. I mean, you should trust your, di- your your team to diary manage themselves. And if they can't do that, then that's a performance matter that needs to be addressed with the individual. But that should never, never happen. I, I mean, I would never clue from. what what my team are doing. Generally, I mean, I I kind of know who's on duty, and but I, I trust them to get their work done themselves. That's my approach not my to management when they do things. My approach to management, and and, and I try and say this to my all my managers: look, at, as long as I as long as everything is done on time, and I do my work. Um, I shouldn't be have to be held accountable for how I'm doing. Spending my time, I should be trusted. And I, and I used to treat my social workers the same when I was a manager. The other aspect of bizarre micromanagement that I once had was a manager who wanted to quality assure minutes for every meeting. So obviously in child protection social work, you, know, you have monthly meetings on all of your cases. Sometimes they're six-weekly, but generally speaking, most will be monthly or thereabouts. So you have monthly child in need review meetings when you've got children on a child in need plan. You have monthly call groups when you've got children on a child protection plan. And you have monthly care teams or child looked after care teams or looked after care teams for children who are currently looked after by the local authority. Now, different councils might have slightly different names for those. Certainly people who are listening outside of the UK will have different names for those, but everybody will, will know that social workers have meetings and have to minute them. Now, I've never once had a manager want to minute every single one, want to uh, quality assure every single one of those meetings because, frankly, they wouldn't have the time. And then these meetings are important, but they're not like a review child protection conference report. They're not like a, a care plan or a statement for court. They don't really need reviewing to that extent. And this manager used to quality assure every single social work from the team's minutes, no matter what meeting they were holding, Again, that's horrendous. <laughs> I don't know how that manager had the time. I couldn't think no. of anything worse than having to go through and check minutes. I, I hate doing it for the meetings that I attend. If someone else, if I'm fortunate to have a minute taker, I find yeah. it a really boring admin task to do. But gosh, I, I don't know how they didn't burn out. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. Let's move on to your third point, Tilly. Uh, toxic managers find a scapegoat within the team and blame that person for everything. Can you explain a bit more about that one? Yeah. So when there is a, someone in the team that a manager picks on and sort of gaslights and bullies, and that person then is the takes the blame for everything, whether it's not doing enough work so that there's delays in allocations or they're just not supporting people in the right way, you find that it kind of makes you feel like it crosses over into almost like domestic violence territory or the coercive and controlling partner. Um, that's the sort of image that I have in my mind when this happens. Um, I mean, fortunately, I haven't come across this myself, 
but I've heard friends and colleagues that have been in different teams that have had this happen and they suddenly have to take the blame for everything. And again, massive, massive red flag. That's not mm. okay. Let's move on to your fourth one. Uh, and this, this is something that, God, yeah, this really does happen, doesn't it? The fourth one uh, sign, the fourth sign of you've got a toxic manager is that they breach confidentiality and gossip behind your back. Yeah, this is a, a, a very common one. Um, and I've, I've had this happen um, with, a, with a previous manager. Um, suddenly you might be in a meeting or, or, or in a group setting within your team and you realise that these confidential details that must have only come from someone's supervision session are getting... Mm slipped in and suddenly everyone knows about them and as I say there's always limits to confidentiality and that needs to be set out at the start of any supervision so for example you know that whatever you discuss with your manager they could discuss with their line manager um, because they need to be able to share within their supervisions what's going on but it should never ever filter out beyond that yeah. and unfortunately we, we see many cases where this happens I think this can be a particular issue if and we kind of got into this in point nine uh, spoiler alert point nine is that some managers have different standards for different workers so we'll discuss that in detail later but in relation to this point I, I think this can happen when social work managers have friends within the team or if they come into a new post, they'll bring friends with them and work with them. And that can be quite common in social work, can't it, Tilly? You know, friends following managers around, managers sort of having favourites. And if they move to a new place, social workers can tend to follow managers around, can't they, at times? They can. And, and I've had that happen as well, where I've worked with people before and then they've known that I've, I've taken up a management post and they've wanted to join me. And that's that's OK. But it's when the, it, it crosses the line yes. and you start gossiping about your management role. And you've got to be so careful if you're supervising a friend. I mean, I, I've always tried to avoid having deep meaning like more than sort of the, the superficial connections with people that I supervise because it's just a conflict of interest. If you have to then, if you're friends with someone and going out and telling them all your deepest, darkest woes, and then suddenly the next day you've got to deal with some sort of HR dispute with them, <laughs> that puts you yeah, in a really awkward difficult. position. And so I think you've got to be able to, again, just have basic communication and, and talk to the people that you supervise and make sure that those boundaries are clear from the start that's what mm. it should be but there's so many times when it's not i i managed two very good friends so i i did this when i was a manager i had um two of my good friends join me in the team one is an even better friend now and one isn't my friend at all it it can be very problematic i found managing people who you've been friends with beforehand and looking back uh, i don't think i would ever do it again I, I, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time and like i say with with 
one of my friends, mine and her relationship has just got even better or even closer and there were no issues at all. It worked really well. With another one of my friends, it it didn't work at all to the point that we we don't communicate anymore. Not not my doing, may I add that. That's sort of her doing. But it can be very, very difficult managing friends' cards. Now, to be clear, I didn't breach any confidentiality or gossip behind the back, but it can be difficult when you've got to call friends out and be and ask them to be accountable and you've got to distance your friendship for the sake of the greater good because if you don't obviously you can you're doing it it's a dereliction of duty so i don't think i would do it again tell you i think it can be hard can't it managing people who you know personally it can and there's a difference between being friendly and being friends like i'm i would like to hope that i'm friendly with everyone in my team and we all go out we're all part of a book club together we um go out for dinner together and that's fine and you can have sort of friendships outside of work, but they all know that I, one, I, I don't like discussing work outside of work. That, that's a, just something it's, it's, we don't need to do it. We spend enough time thinking about work yeah, as it is. Tell me about it. Um, doesn't need to bleed into your personal life. But also they all know that whilst I'm friendly towards them, if there is an issue, I have to put my manager's, responsibilities first and i think one of my friends got that but the other didn't next one they take credit for your work kind of the opposite of what i'm doing here today tilly because i i could have i could have said oh well i've got this brilliant idea but no we are giving you credit so tell me about managers that might take credit for the work of their staff oh it's a Again, this is a really uncomfortable one. And I've had this happen to me before where I've created this whole new system. And before I know it, it's been pitched to senior managers as their own idea and their own doing when actually it wasn't. Um, It's just not okay. You should give credit to people where it's due. And if someone else has come up with an idea and you have then run with that idea, just credit them for it. It's it's common sense and just plain courtesy, really. Um, so if they don't and they brandish their their ideas as theirs when it, they're not, then that's a that's a red flag. And this next one, your sixth point, kind of follows on from that that managers don't listen to your ideas. So as a manager, I'm sure Telly that you get many ideas pitched to you, which are nonsense. I'll oh, just make, just, just make no sense at all. Just absolutely crazy ideas. Uh, but I imagine you get others which are quite good, but of course you wouldn't take credit for them. So what sort of ideas are you talking about here that may be proposed by staff and, and how might managers be toxic by not, not being willing to take on board the ideas and suggestions of people they oversee? Well, I always say to my team that whilst I'm managing the team, this is the success of the team is a collective responsibility. And I think it's really important that managers encourage everyone in the team to share good practice, share ideas and help improve efficiencies. And I think that's really important. That's what we should all be doing. But obviously, sometimes ideas are suggested that 
you know just wouldn't work or there's a reason why you can't do them perhaps there's different financial implications or there's some sort of bureaucracy or or HR issue that means that you can't just do something um, but equally it's it's like no idea it should ever be treated as a bad idea even if it is technically a bad idea you've still got to give people the credit for for raising something and and thanking them for it and being really enthusiastic that they've taken the time to think about the situation and share your, their ideas with you and if it's not going to work just have the courtesy again to to tell them look I'm, I'm really sorry this isn't going to work this is why um but thank you for coming up with the idea and we'll, we'll I'll listen to any ideas that you have how do you create a culture where you foster idea sharing and innovation what what can you do to help promote that collaborative approach to engaging and working with the people we support so it's about having open communication so I set time aside with each of my supervisees that they have time within their supervision to share feedback. Feedback works both ways. And then there's also time within team meetings for people to share ideas. Um, But ultimately, people are willing to do that when they feel safe and they know that they're not going to be laughed at or mocked for coming up with something stupid. They can bounce ideas off of each other and they know that I'm grateful for whatever they come up with, even if it's not going to work. So if you've got a manager that's really negative or critical about people, that's not going to encourage people to put their head above the parapet and share ideas because they're just going to get shut down. But if you're someone that's really open and warm about that, then people are going to want to improve things and come up with different ideas and, and be part of that team development. Everyone pulls in the same direction, don't they? Your seventh point, this one struck a chord with me. And, and, and it, it struck a chord with me because not only have I seen it happening, but also because I think it, it, it can be quite an interesting debate, this, because it's not that clear cut. So this one is a toxic manager will ask you to keep working when you're sick. I'm going to open this up on the debate aspect of it, Tilly, because for me, there's a fine line here between encouraging social workers to see through, to see how they're going to feel tomorrow, or to see how they might feel with a change of caseload or a change of plan and so on, and actually pushing people beyond what's humane. Do you see where I'm coming from? This... There can be an element of trying to encourage and infuse people who may be feeling under the weather, yet you've got to be careful not to cross over that boundary into actively telling people to keep work where they're unfit to work. Do you see where I'm coming from? I do. Um, I suppose I always try and, and frame it to my staff that if if they're ill and they cannot work, whether that's a physical health issue or a mental health issue, the only person that can decide whether they're okay to carry on or not is themselves. And 
I think we need to be grown ups about that and take a sensible decision. And I will respect whichever decision that they come to. Um, the example that I alluded to <clears throat> in my article was a, a, a fellow social worker that was in a different team and she was pregnant and she was suffering from horrendous morning sickness that was lasting for, for all day. And she was in and out of hospital because of it. And her manager told her to pull herself together because pregnancy isn't an illness. And she kept working right up until she gave birth. So why couldn't my, my friend do that too? And that just, I mean, it was a lawsuit waiting to happen. I don't, I don't quite know how that that manager carried on in that position, really. Shocking, but isn't it? It's absolutely disgusting, you know. And it's this awful. is we're meant to be a caring profession, and we can't yeah. even care for a pregnant woman now. We're on team who's trying the hardest and in and out of hospital. I mean, it makes you think: How on earth does such a manager treat the clients that she's got power over? I know, I know. It's it's really scary. Um, I mean, I think it's what got worse in a way now that we're in this sort of post-COVID world where virtual working becomes so much of the norm. Because it, if you're going into an office or you're going out into home visits, into vulnerable people's homes that may have compromised immune systems, there it's very clear cut. If you're ill, you cannot go in, so you cannot work. But now where working from home is so common, it is easy to slip into that, well, I, I can't leave the house, but I can just log in and, and do a bit of work. I can catch up with a bit of paperwork. And I think it's become a more blurred boundary. So again, it's, I come back, I'm going to sound myself like a broken record here. It comes back to communication with your staff, because if, if they are well enough to, to do that, then that's okay. They can they can have an admin day. We all have days where we're not feeling our best, but we can do a bit of admin and on the computer, mm. um, and and that's not going to impact on us. But then there are other times when you think, no, actually, I'm poorly. I need to go back to bed. I need to have a lazy day on the sofa. I I can't focus. I can't do my work, and that should be again. That should be respected. And for me, this is this is how good ma- good managers have really taken advantage in a good way from the shift towards home working, because good managers who, as we were discussing earlier, who don't micromanage and who do respect boundaries and who do trust their social workers, good managers can really use this situation and say to the workers, look, as long as it comes to Friday and your work's done, as long as your visits are on, your reports are done in time, you've dealt with all your emails and phone calls. If you need to take four hours off one afternoon because you're unwell, you don't even need to let me know. And I'll just trust you. I'll trust you that if something comes in, you'll deal with it. And as a salaried profession, you know, you're paid on the results rather than having to work in like a factory unit by the hour or something. And I think good managers who've created that trusting and caring dynamic within the team, I think they can really, they've really worked this well. Yeah, I completely agree. Next one, number eight, a sign that your manager might be toxic is that they are moody and unapproachable. Tell me about your moody and unapproachable experiences, Tilly. 
Oh, there is just no worse feeling than needing to desperately talk to your manager about an issue, but not knowing whether you're going to get them on a good day or a bad day, whether that's asking for funding or asking for a placement or something. And you're just really concerned about how they're going to react. And that is a big red flag because they, you should have some consistency. I mean, everyone has different styles, different personalities, but when you feel unsafe or unsure about how you're going to approach something and that puts extra pressure on you as a frontline practitioner to try and have to, to catch them in a good moment, that's toxic behaviour. That shouldn't happen. No, you're right. It shouldn't happen at all. And 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 I think... It kind of comes back to something you were talking about earlier. You were just talking earlier about the manager who was criticising your friend for having the temerity to dare be unwell while she was growing a human being inside of her and suggesting that because she worked up until she had the child that someone else should. Now, I'm certainly not looking to excuse or justify that behaviour. I'm not, Tilly. I'm not at all. But what I will say is moody and unapproachable people that can often be driven by stress and pressure in their own life and managers who act in the way that you were describing, given the example that your friend unfortunately experienced. Managers who act like that can often be doing so because they face extreme pressures from people above them and they know that if a worker does go off sick, even if it's for the best of reasons, that that will cause significant pressures that they and the rest of the team might not be able to cope with. So I'm not certainly not justifying it, but you can understand these drivers, can't you, Tilly? Oh, of course. And I think... it's a really difficult position to be in sometimes these middle management positions where you're trying to shield your your team from higher ups expectations but equally being accountable to your senior management and ensuring that that your team are performing at their best you've got to have big shoulders and sometimes that their cracks are appearing there's always times when when you're going to be more stressed and you might find it really difficult to to be as approachable as you usually are, um, especially when you're, you're so busy and you keep getting calls coming in from your, your team asking for different things. There are times when I've had to say, please, unless it's someone's dying, please don't message me. I need to get this before. <laughs> yeah, <then." laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but putting up those those communication channels again is is a really crucial thing that managers should do and if whilst you don't want to burden your team with your own pressures um, and you don't want them to worry about you and your your capabilities uh, to, to support the team they've equally got to be aware of some of the wider things that are going on yes. because you do sh- you have to shield your your team from a lot of outside noise and that can be really stressful as a manager to deal with. But if they are just generally moody and unapproachable, then that's not okay. As hard as it probably is for you to understand this, Tilly, don't laugh. Um, sometimes I come across as moody and unapproachable, you know. Oh, I would never believe that. 
and, and the reason why is I have got is is you probably know yourself. I've got a very rigid approach to how I go about things. You know, I like structure in my life. And over the years and years that I've been a social worker, I've refined my craft to the point where I focus on what's in my in my control and don't and don't spend any time and energy on what's outside of it. And I use time boxing. I am very strict with my time management. I've got an order for when I have my meetings, when I have my visits, when my minutes are done. I plan my core group six months in advance. I know I could look at my work diary today and I could tell you what, what exact day and time I'm going to write a report that isn't due for four months. Now, of course, sometimes crises occur and you have to jiggle that around, but I'll always find space. Because of that, because I have such a diligent and laser-focused approach to work, never really have time for anything outside of that. So obviously, if I'm on duty, I'll support things. But if people are talking about their own cases, I don't really get embroiled in that. I never really get involved in office gossip. I don't really know what's happened with my colleagues' personal life. When I'm in the office, I'm there to work. I'm not there to chat. And it does, it leads to me having a reputation for being moody and unapproachable. And it's that, that that's the kind of sacrifice that I've had to make in order to be a high performing social worker and in order to get my job done in the 30 hours a week that I'm allotted to it. Cause I, you know, I just work part time. I I've got to be like that, Tilly. I've got to be like that. So I think sometimes, hopefully help me out here, mate. Sometimes can people not seem moody and unapproachable, but for good reason? I mean, they can, but I'm the complete opposite to you. I'm naturally really disorganised, so I have to upskill myself to make sure that I allow time for planning things in in advance because I'm generally I'll, I'll chat to anyone and I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing from one moment to the next. I kind of fly by the seat of my pants kind of thing um but I think that's the difference then between being a frontline social worker where you've got your caseload and you've got your tasks to then being a manager where your team is your caseload and I think that that there's a difference in in way that you have how you have to behave from being a frontline social worker where I think it's completely acceptable to do what you've just suggested and, and not just acceptable. I think it, it needs to be encouraged in some Oh, aspect. get on. You've given me validation, Tilly. You've given me, you, you have given <laughs> but me not the as green a manager, light. Not, you can't do that when, you're, when you've got your team to support. I'm going to go forth being obtuse and indifferent to anything that is out of my control. Um, the ninth one, the ninth sign that you have a toxic manager is that they have different standards for different workers. And we harked to, towards this earlier when I said that this can be particularly common when people have friends or favourites within the team, can't it? It can. And because everyone works so differently, it it's tricky to define what good practice is or what good enough is. Um, But it's something that you have to be very aware of. And if we're thinking about reflective practice as a social worker, you've, you've also got to be very reflective as a manager and check in with yourself that you are treating your team fairly and equitably because 
whilst you can't treat everyone the same because different people have different needs, there has to be a fairness in your approach. And when there isn't, and you see managers that do have favourites and they'll let some things slide with one person but not with another, that can be a, a big red flag. But on the flip side, though, you do have to be careful that actually you might, as a, as a frontline social worker, you don't know what's going on with your colleagues. They may have different things going on in their caseloads, their personal lives that you would never be party to because, well, you shouldn't be party to. And if you are, again, that's back to number, whichever one it was, where they, they gossip behind your back and breach confidentiality. So I always struggle with social workers that try and gauge things like caseloads and say well that social worker's got fewer cases than I have or that social worker doesn't look like they're they're doing what they should be doing because actually that's none of their business that's between them and or the person and the, their manager because they there may be different factors going on that that need to be taken into account but ultimately you're you're you should all feel like you're treated fairly and, and equally within the team. You're my favourite, Tilly. If you were in my team, you'd be my favourite. Oh, of course. <laughs> well, I don't think we would be. I, I think we would struggle because um, we are. We do work very differently, you and I. As you say, you're, you're, you're laser-focused and I'd be the one that's messaging you with funny memes and, and distracting you look and at trying this, to Tilly. get you to gossip. I, this this isn't about me. This is about you. I've I've just said to you there. I've just said you'd be my favourite, and the immediate thing you've come back with is no. I don't think we would. Like, I, no, I don't think you would find me your favourite. You I are. Really you tell you are my favourite. You know, but Aww. my my love for you is unconditional. That makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And likewise, I would, if I was your manager, I would find you very straightforward because you'd just get on with it and you wouldn't cause me any bother. So oh, well, there we go. A Tell good you, right, person that's to it. supervise. I am um, giving up my decade in my commitment to child protection. I'm coming to... I'm coming to the dark side. Is adults the dark side? No, it's the, the light side. side. Am I on the dark side? side? Am I on the dark side of the force? Is yes, child you protection are. the dark side? Oh, I think child protection is always the dark side, unfortunately. And You'll I can have say to that. Purge me. You'll have to purge me. You'll have to purge me of my, my child protection ways. Moving swiftly on before we start an adult versus social work, adult versus children's social work war, war here. The last thing. The last thing and the last sign of these 10 that your manager might be toxic is they do not support your career development. And this is a difficult one. I think this is a difficult one for managers because, not that I ever did this, but I can see how there is a fear that if you really support your social worker's dreams to come true, they won't be your social worker for too much longer. Am I really cynical for saying that, or is that a fact? No, it's true. And that's the balance that you have to strike. And you, as a manager, you need to put your the people that you're, you're supervising, they need to come first before anything else. You need to look after them. I always liken myself to being a bit like a mother hen with my team. And I want what's best for them as individuals. 
And if that means that they're going to do some different training and then they go on to be uh, bigger and better social workers in different teams, then that's fine by me. And that's a really difficult position to be in because there is nothing worse than having someone hand in their notice when they're a brilliant social worker. It feels like a, your whole gut is being ripped out because yeah. you think, gosh, how am I ever going to find a replacement for them? They're just so brilliant. What are we going to do without them? But you've got to put that aside and think what is best for them. And if you've got a manager that doesn't do that and they will block your career progression, they'll stop you from going on certain training when there's not good reason to do so, or they will not give you a a, a good reference deliberately so that you don't get a position or not put you forward for some sort of career development, then that's a toxic behaviour because they are not doing what is best for you. They are being selfish. And if you think about wider social work, then we should want to do the greatest good for as many people as possible, even if that means that the people in your patch might temporarily suffer whilst you find a replacement. That social work is going on to to support other people elsewhere and sharing their knowledge and skills that they've learned with you. So you've got to let them fly the nest every now and then. And, and I think if you can do that well, if you can do that successfully and you have a reputation for doing that, you will replace them, won't you? If people know um, that they can come to your team and for however long they are there, you will support them, you'll nurture them, you'll grow them and allow them to move on, you should hopefully get a reputation and end up getting better workers in or just as good workers in to replace the ones that are leaving. Of course you do. Yeah, you reap what you sow. Yeah, definitely. And then that's about it's about a long-term thinking. And I think that that's the kind of theme that, that covers all of these um, points is if managers are only thinking about the short-term and results day-to-day, then they won't respect your boundaries. They will micromanage you. They will scapegoat people because it potentially, you know, covers their back because they can point to the service manager and say, well, it wasn't me. It was this one bad egg. It was a one bad social worker. They will breach confidentiality and gossip because they don't care whether you go or not because the priority is the mates and keeping the mate happy. They will take credit for the work, for your work, because they're more interested in their own career progression than that of their team. They won't listen to ideas because they don't care about having you there long term. They will tell you to keep working when they're sick because they'd rather have you for an extra couple of days and then not worry about you putting your notice in and leaving for good. They will be moody and unapproachable because they'll be too focused on their own needs and too stressed about things, thinking day to day and not looking to the future. They will have different standards for different workers again, just thinking about things day to day. And they won't support your career development for fear you will leave. So I believe that all of these things kind of share that in common, Tilly, that it's all about short-termism and crisis management rather than a long-term holistic view of social work and the social workers that you manage. I think that's a really fair summary. Um, Yeah, I agree completely. Bingo. I will take that off you, Tilly. Thank you very much. Um, So there we have it, guys. Ten signs that your social work manager is toxic. Tilly, thank you ever so much for a superb article and also for a very insightful discussion on it on today's show. Um, I I may be putting my notice in now and uh, coming to join you on the South Coast. 
Oh, any day, Vince, any day. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you ever so much. Right, guys, thank you ever so much for tuning in. As always, do check out mysocialworknews.com. Not only will you find Tilly's article, 10 Signs Your Social Work Manager is Toxic, but you can also find many different news pieces, opinion pieces, and columns. We usually publish three or four brand new pieces every day, so do bookmark it and do check it out. Also follow Social Work News and Social Work World on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. As always, do consider leaving a review for this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you ever so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.